Thank you for listening to Cure the Culture with Nia and Ebony. On this podcast, we facilitate conversations about health in the Black community and answer your questions through a research-based lens. We create a safe haven for Black patients and Black healthcare professionals to share their unique medical journeys. Tune in now for guidance, personal stories, and the latest research on everything Black health. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Cure the Culture. Yes. Ebony, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I am good. I am tired. This like new mask thing, everybody's taking their mask off and that means all the kids are getting sick. Mm. You heard it here first. (laughs) I have seen an uptick in flu, RSV and COVID in everybody who's young and especially those who are toddlers or in daycare. So I've had a couple kids get really, really sick. So just everybody just be careful. If I had kids, I would not be allowing them to be unmasked mm-hmm. in school. Just because I feel like, you know, we're going to get another variant. And then it's like, then you got to get them used to it all over again. It obviously does work because I, I remember this time last year, I wasn't seeing nearly as many cases of like RSV, flu, parainfluenza, other types of viruses. Mm-hmm. And now this year, it's like overrun. Our schedule's crazy. So the only thing that's changed is that we're not masking anymore. So I think (laughs) masking Mm -hmm. works no matter the quote-unquote controversy. But I'm super excited to have our guest today. Dr. Amuta is going to be here. She is an associate professor with the Department of Public Health and Community Medicine at Tufts University. I want to read you guys a little bit about her academic profile. She got her Bachelor's of Science from Rutgers University in 2003. (laughs) Jersey! Shout out to Rutgers, shout out to Jersey. She got her master's in public health from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. in 2005. And she got her doctor of philosophy degree at the University of Maryland in 2010. So we have an excellent guest with us here today. And I'm really, really excited. Are you excited, Eb? We are going to be doing a topic, which we've done before, but me and Eb are going to try to do like a hot take on the topic. We've touched on Black maternal mortality before in the past, but this time we're going to really talk about solutions. We're going to try to have a solutions-based conversation. So, Eb, tell me how you feel about that. I mean, I think that this is how we need to approach things, especially within the Black community. What are the resiliency factors? What can we do about it? So there's all these statistics about us, and what about it? (laughs) Exactly. I think that this is really going to be a great conversation because it can be a depressing topic. But when you feel like there are places where you can take control, where you can actively implement a solution, I think that that feels really good for people in general, but especially our community, that there is a history of oppression. That's just a reality. Right. Especially within the medical field. There is a lot of bias, unfortunately, and I would even say racism in the medical field. And so Mm -hmm. we have to kind of scrub that out. We have to get that out in the open. And I wanted to talk to you about the royal family visiting these different Caribbean countries. And there's been all this controversy. I don't know if you've seen on the news. You know, I don't watch the news now. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what's going on and then you can give me your hot take. Okay. This will be raw and uncut. (laughs) (laughs) Uncut gems, you know? (laughs) I will tell you what's going on first. So William and Kate, they're going through and they're doing a tour as they usually do all over the world, you know, diplomacy. And they're going to these Caribbean countries where, you know, there's been this segregation, racism, slavery, England and Europe were a part of the international slave trade. And a lot of these Caribbean countries were affected. And they've been going to Jamaica and Barbados and they haven't been getting the warmest welcome, depending on the country. There's been a lot of, and I wouldn't say from the people, I wouldn't say Caribbean people. I feel like generally they're warm, welcoming people. 
but from their parliaments and their legislatures and mm. their senators, they mm-hmm. have been getting a little bit of pushback and wanting to confront racism and colonialism head on. So I wanted to kind of see, because everybody in, I heard on The View today, Whoopi Goldberg was talking about it, and I wanted to kind of get your opinion on that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's one of those things where it's like there's a history here and it's kind of hard to make nice for the cameras because you're visiting. I think there's maybe a desire to kind of put it all on the table and let's like name this really ugly racist elephant in the room. These countries really want more autonomy and they think this visit really expresses that there's still a level of oppression happening. There's still this foot in the door of their countries and they don't want it. They fought for, I'm going to say decades, but maybe centuries to not be under the thumb of England. And I think that that's understandable. And so your affect is a great way to express our sentiments, how we feel as a people. Now to play devil's advocate, obviously you don't go to someone's country without an invitation, right? So there was obviously an invitation that was extended to them to come and to have this diplomatic meeting. Yeah, I don't know who set up what. I don't know. And was it an invitation with like a coercion thing? Because America's good for that. America's good for like, we'll give you aid if you do this like really public thing with us to make us look good. So yes, to be honest, we don't know the context, but they were there. They were meeting with the representatives. I feel like if no one wanted to come, no one had to show up, you know, at the end of the day. So other people are saying, you know, don't invite people to your country if you're going to just be standoffish. And I don't think that's fair either. I think it's just like you said, I think countries have the right to their own autonomy, especially, you don't know, us from the United States, like we have been free from England for a very long time. Now in Canada, they still are on that queen mm-hmm. stuff. There's some pride in it for them too, isn't there? Well, I think there's probably mixed reviews, but I would just say, especially in the Caribbean countries where there has been literally human trafficking, rape, slavery, I mean, it is what it is. You can't expect in 2022 to, you know, show up without the demons in your closet. They're out there. Mm -hmm. People know. Yeah, they do. And I think the best way to do it is to just be honest and set up a plan for these countries being independent. And also what they're really talking about is reparations. Mm -hmm. They don't just want an apology. No. Put your money where your mouth is. How much money has England made off of Black bodies? Oh, my. And still making. And America, too. And this idea that if we pay reparations, we'll be in debt. We're already in debt, first of all, apparently. And second of all, there is money there. Let's stop it. Let's look at what's happening even with things like crypto. There's so totally a way you could pay every black and brown person what you owe them. So then another hot take is people were saying, oh, what do these two people have to do with what happened centuries ago? Hmm. I don't know. I think that's a really generational trauma. (laughs) I don't know. Generational wealth. It's in ourselves. Um, Yeah. Multiple, multiple. They literally represent the generations before them. That is literally their job. Through bloodlines. I think they have a direct tie to that, what's going on. So I don't think that they can get a pass go on that, as we would say, and get their get out of free jail card. Right. (laughs) Let's get back to our guest. I wanted to read a little bit more about her because she is a phenomenon in herself. Dr. Amita, she is currently a professor at the Julia A. Okora Professor of Black Maternal Health in the Department of Public Health and Community Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine. Shout out to Tufts. Shout out to Tufts. Her current research interests include maternal health disparities, reproductive health, and social justice, infant mortality, and HIV and AIDS in Black women. Dr. Amita, 
also serves as the inaugural Assistant Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusions for Public Health and Professional Degree Programs. She's had multiple funded by the NIH interdisciplinary grants, also funded by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. She has done a lot of work on COVID-19, Maternal Equity Coalition. She's been honored by many, many different organizations for her work and her research. So I think that we have such an amazing person, Black woman, who's going to be speaking to us. And she has over 45 manuscripts, five books, and a best-selling book on Amazon and textbook on culturally responsive evaluation. So Ebony, we were just talking about this the other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I might have to pick her brain truly and really today because that's what my whole dissertation is going to be on. This is important to me as well because competency is something I'm training other clinicians on. And so I'd love to hear what the research is saying. This is literally how do we get better? How do we be anti-racist? All of us. When you don't have a shared lived experience with your patient population, how do you get in the know? How do you not put your patient in the expert seat to have to inform you? Because that's so not their role. Right. And so I'm really, really excited to have her today. So let's go ahead and introduce her. Welcome. It's such a pleasure to have Dr. Amuta with us. It's going to be a great episode, another episode of Cure the Culture. All Jersey girls, by the way, which is Jersey amazing. in the building. <laughs> yes, representing Jersey Black Girl Magic. So Jersey this is a special kind. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So we're going to dive right in and get to know some questions and really dive into our topic. So right off the bat, I would love to know what inspired you to study racial inequalities and maternal mortality? Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. Team Cure, Cure for the Team Cure for the podcast. Cure the culture. culture. (laughs) Cure for the culture. You guys are doing something amazing here. I'm honored to be in your space. I am loving the professionalism. I am loving the premise behind this. Of course, the Jersey Black Girl Magic. Shout out to both of you. This is really, really amazing. Like I was sharing backstage, I've been doing a lot of media recently, and this is by far, no shade, shout out to the other podcasts I've done. This has been such a seamless and professional production. From the back of the house to the front of the house. So I just want to say that. Shout out to your listeners. Shout out to anybody that's coming across. This is the podcast that you want to be on. They know what they're doing. Okay. (laughs) Because you know what? Honestly, we know how hard you have to work to do the work you're doing. It's So we want to make it, if you're going to give us your time, which you could be charging coin for doing. Well, that part. (laughs) And you should. But what I'm saying is we want to make it as seamless as possible for you because you're donating your time and to our listeners. So go ahead, Dr. Amita, what brought you into this field? So what brought me into this field is my lived experience. I did a TED Talk about three weeks ago. So when the footage from the TED Talk comes out, I'll share it with you guys. But the title of my TED Talk was The System is Broken, Mm. Healthcare, Racism, and Its Impact on Maternal Health. I just did it on March 6th. So it's not even like three weeks ago. I talk about in the TED Talk how I got into do the work of Black maternal health. I got to do this work because I've experienced personal loss in this field and it's completely preventable. 63% of all deaths are preventable. That's real. 90% of all deaths related to hemorrhage are preventable. Mm. Black women are 243% more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications. This is insane. This is out of control. And this is in the United States. And the latest data that just dropped from CDC about a month ago shows that our rates are getting worse. We're not closing this gap. We're not reducing inequities. They're getting 
wider. It used to be that Black women were 2.3 times more likely. Now we're almost three times higher. Mm. So there's a real urgency to this work. I personally do the work because I've experienced loss. I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey. My parents are immigrants to the United States from Nigeria. And one of my best friends in high school, may she rest in perfect peace, she had a baby. She was 15. I was 16. I remember going to see her in the hospital. Her name was Waikia Moore. I remember I went to see Kia and I'm like, Kia, you look great. Like her complexion was just off. So she was like, Didi, I'm so tired. And she was gone within like two or three days. Wow. Now we found out that now at 16, you're not comprehending. Sure. It's just this insurmountable loss. She has this beautiful baby girl mm-hmm. who's in law school now. Shout out to Oh, Jamira. God bless her. She's in law school, right? Shout out to Jamira. I just remember feeling, is this what's happening in these suburban communities around Trenton? Mm. They're not experiencing this loss. That was a case of maternal death, but I was losing friends all the time. My mom was like, you know what? You're not going to any more funerals. My mother literally made the determination. I'm like 16, 17 years old. You're not going to any more funerals. This is not normal. This is not normal behavior. Your mates are preparing for college, checking their SAT. You're here going to funerals because somebody got shot by the police, because somebody got stabbed, because something else happened, X, Y, Z. So the work about maternal health is personal to me. To lose one of my best friends at such a young age. That was so transformative in my life. You go through life and you don't really understand how you walk in your purpose and your assignment, but that was put on me. It was my purpose and my assignment, even before I knew what I was formally called to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's super relatable. And look at you with all this greatness. Look at you now. Mm-hmm. You understood the assignment? I understood the assignment. <laughs> let me tell you something. Even when you think you don't understand the assignment, it's still going to come back to you. You can't run from the assignment. Whatever's on your life to pursue, you could be over here doing this. You still going to get pulled back over here. You could be over here. You still going to get pulled back to it. Mm-hmm. It's bigger than you. That's why yeah. I tell people, like, Dr. Muta, you're so successful. I'm like, no, I'm a vessel. It's mm-hmm. bigger than me. I'm just a vessel to move the work forward. Mm. So I lost my friend when I was a teenager. Fast forward, I go to college. Shout out to Rutgers. I did my master's, I did my PhD. And my postdoc, I did my postdoc in Baltimore, funded by the Kellogg Foundation. One of my best friends in my postdoc, we worked cubicle to cubicle for two years. We used to go to lunch in downtown Baltimore in a harbor. So that was 2012. So a few years later, I get a call. They're like, Shalanda. I'm like, what you mean, Shalanda? Shalanda, we worked together cubicle to wow. cubicle for two years. Her case received national attention. Dr. Shalanda Irving, may she rest in perfect peace. She died from preventable complications after she delivered her daughter from preeclampsia. Now, the crazy part about her case in particular is that she was seen eight times by a provider. Wow. Shameful. The system failed her, just like it failed Waikia and Trenton. So this work, I do it for the culture. Mm-hmm. Mm. I do it for the culture. I do it for my friends who should be here raising their kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These women always wanted to be mothers. They were so excited to be on this journey to becoming a mother. And they didn't even get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Because the healthcare system failed them. The healthcare system is broken and racist. So my job in the healthcare system, one, is to hold it accountable. Yeah. I see you. Speak on that. I'm here. I see you. With facts. (laughs) Facts. And two, to help train the next generation. That's why I have such a large lab. I'm like, listen, this is not an ordinary research lab. We're here to save lives. The work that we're doing is that important. Mm -hmm. So that's why I do the work. I do it because it's personal to me. I do it because I also have lived experience. I'm a mother myself. I have two beautiful sons. And, you know, it's so funny. Every time I walk, well, now they done got the memo. It's in my chart, y'all, that I'm a professor. I got a PhD. It's in my chart. (laughs) They're coming to the visit different. Mm -hmm, Yeah. They're coming to the visit different. (laughs) 
You're going to sit up straight when you talk to me. Hey, put some respect on your name. <laughs> you come into the we had talked to Dr. Keisha Bentley. You'll have to like run yes, back to her. I know that name. She's at Duke. She was saying they put it in her chart. And I'm like, I don't know, man. It's protective. It's very protective. It's protective. Yeah, but it shouldn't be like that. I don't care if my name is Tequila. Shout out to my tequilas out there. I don't care if my name is Hennessy and I'm 13 years old. I should get the same respect. But the system is not like that. I remember this one visit I had a particular, I'm like maybe second trimester. The guy's doing my radiology, the sonogram. The doctor came in. First of all, he didn't even knock on the door. Uh, hi, can you knock on the door? I said, I need you to exit and come back in. Like this was your mother's house. Would you walk into your mother's house like that? No. This guy got to be 65. He was like, who the hell is this? Get out. I'm just <laughs> yeah. like, have some sense. He knocked, he came back in, whatever. So we're doing a visit. And then I looked on his jacket. I said, it said MD, PhD. I said, oh, where'd you go for your PhD? He said, MIT. I said, oh, no. I said, where'd you go for your PhD? I went to University of Maryland for mine. So he's like, PhD, his whole demeanor, mm-hmm. his whole face changed. Like, oh, she got a PhD. Oh, where do you work? Where do you work? Where do you go? And then we found out we have people in common. Of course we do. We're both in the field of medicine in Boston. Of course we got people in common. But the whole visit was so different. Mm. And I left there feeling so disappointed in the healthcare system. I know, because it happens every day. Every day. I'm a provider and I've cried at visits. And I will say this time and time again, because all we have having the knowledge is knowing that you're doing us wrong. Yeah. And then I get more upset because I feel like people who don't have that knowledge, they just don't know. And they don't know to get a second opinion. And we said this the last episode, Ebony, right? Mm-hmm. The most mm-hmm. important decision you can ever make is who you trust with your care. And how you advocate for yourself. Because what you just described, Dr. Amuta, is like really putting your own autonomy at the front and saying like, no, you're not allowed to treat me that way. Here are my boundaries. And this is my standard of care, whether you're going to ascribe to it or not. That's right. And if not, I'm going to report you to the KI board and I'm going to have a different provider. Yep. Period. (laughs) Yeah. What you think? Every hospital has a QI board. Everybody has a boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would mm-hmm. take it right up the chain. If that don't work, I'm going to blow you up in the media, honey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't have pledged the oath if you didn't Thank take you. it seriously. No. Thank yeah. you. That's all I'm saying. We all have an oath. So speaking of your two beautiful children, which by the way, I just want to say Dr. Amuta is the funniest person ever. <laughs> <laughs> when I first reached out to her, like literally six months ago, I think she's like, Girl, I'm about to give birth. I'm literally <laughs> two weeks from maternity leave. I could tell she had it circled in yes, her calendar because she's red. so busy. <laughs> yes. And she said, but get back to me. I'm going to be back at this time. And she followed up with she me, which was amazing. Word. I wanted to ask you, though, Dr. Amita, how was your birthing experience? So here's the thing. When you do this work, you're so close to the data. It's hard to disentangle yourself. I practice heavy self-care during the pregnancy. Love that. Because I know the statistics, right? We're more likely to have gestational hypertension, diabetes, the list goes on. I was like, listen, we're going to get to term. We're going to have a full birth weight baby. We're not claiming C-section. We're not claiming medical intervention. We're not claiming complications. I remember early in my visit, early in my pregnancy, my doctor was out. So I was seen by a resident. The resident was, said, oh, we might have to do a C-what? Out. <laughs> None of that negative energy. You couldn't even get the word out of her mouth. I was like, this visit is over. And I text my doctor. I said, don't you ever send that resident back in here with me again. There's no medical need for a C-section. Wow. So, well, it depends on the person. For me, there was no medical need. You see what I'm saying? Most C-sections are medically unnecessary unless the mother or the fetus is in distress. A C-section is like breaking case of emergency. 
it's a fire hydrant. You don't go spraying a fire hydrant every day. You spray <laughs> it. You break that case when you need it. The United it. States has a real problem with C-sections. They really do. I was a C-section baby. And now I'm like, did my mom need a C-section? It might not have been medically necessary. You should ask your mom about your birth journey. Did your OBGYN have dinner plans? Because... Right. <laughs> Ooh, tell the truth. But I've rotated through. And I'm just saying that some women want a C-section. You know, you can schedule a C-section. But Dr. Ramacha is right. Unless there's a medical reason, exactly as she said, it's for an emergency. It's called an emergency cesarean section, usually for a reason. Yeah. So my birth experience was beautiful. First of all, I love being pregnant. I love everything about pregnancy. I'm in love with it. I'm in love with it. I love the journey of conception. You're like, oh my gosh, the sperm is going to meet the egg and then they're going to implant. You can't feel it, but it's beautiful to complete. You know it's happening. Right? Yeah, you know it's spiritual. It's spiritual. Then it implants on the wall of the uterus and then it grows. It goes from an embryo to a fetus, a fetus to a baby. I can't give God enough glory. And particularly for Black women, we have to thank him for every step of the journey. I have people in my sphere, literally, who are praying to get pregnant. I have friends who don't even have a womb anymore because they have to get it taken out for endometriosis. Or fibroids. Fibroids, right? So people that can't even carry. So we thank God for the gift of being able to conceive. Then we thank him to be able to carry. Then we thank him to be able to carry to term. Mm-hmm. I made it to the finish line, full term. Then we thank him for a safe delivery, Earthside. Every step of the journey, we have to thank him because every step is that much more dangerous for Black and brown people. None of this part is on accident. We can't take our eyes off the ball for a minute. From conception to they put that baby on your chest and that APGAR score comes back, we can't take our eyes off the prize. It's too critical. I had a beautiful journey, honey. Living my best life, eating everything I wanted. (laughs) The first pregnancy was a savory journey, like the chips and the guac. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so I, I couldn't get enough chips and guac. Uh-huh. This pregnancy, this was a sweet. Give me a glazed donut. <laughs> right? I was crazy. I don't even eat like that now, but it was like, babe, I need a donut. Like, we need to go. He was just like, really? I was like, yeah, I need a small ice cream, plain, right? With some three munchkins on the side. <laughs> <laughs> now. <laughs> now. No question. That. <laughs> but it was beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. I love being pregnant. Now, my case is very best case scenario, right? Like, I never had morning sickness, y'all. Not a vomiting, nausea, never. I slept well. Always been a good sleeper. Now, at the end, you feel a little bit turtle-like. You're uncomfortable, you know? You're carrying an eight-pound person. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of moving like this by like 36, 37 weeks. You're kind of over it, you know what I'm saying? But it was beautiful. I have, I love, I'm in, I'm in love. I wish I could have the life I have now with the resources I have now. I would have 50 kids, honey. Didi be pregnant every day. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love so it. So there's hope. That's what I'm hearing. There's hope. There's hope. There's hope. Now, I wanted to ask you again another question. I wanted to ask you who was in your support network? Who did you have supporting you? You said a village. I had a village. I had my mother. Shout out to my mom, Mrs. Abigail Amuta. She'll listen to this. She listens to everything I do. She's an amazing Mother. Shout out to you, mommy. mommy. Shout out to you, beautiful mom. woman that we Shout have. Yes. You, to us. <laughs> you think I'm a warrior, honey? You should see her. She runs <laughs> I believe about you. Me all day, okay? We all um, come from warriors. It sounds oh, like yes, <laughs> yes. So I have my mother. I have my husband. You know, and it's so funny because we need to do a better job of engaging men in the process because we put them on a shelf, right? 
even though we literally couldn't do it without their contribution. <laughs> like that. But we put him on a shelf. He came to every visit. He cut the umbilical cord. You know what I'm saying? Even when they were giving me the epidural, he's peeking through like, what y'all doing to my wife in there? Like, great. He knows too. He's seen the he research knows. too. <laughs> so he was in my tribe. I had an amazing doula. Shout out to my oh, doula. Oh, I was going to ask you that. Great. Love to hear amazing. it. Amazing. She was fantastic. I have to give a shout out to Deshana Hanlon from Caring for Mamas Doula Services here in Massachusetts. Sis came to my house. She played with my kids. She was there for the labor and delivery. After she came by the house, is the baby latching? Can I hold him while you go take a shower? Is there anything you need to do? Like full service doula. She's amazing. I sent everybody to her. I meet people in a grocery store. I'm like, you got to do the call to Shauna. <laughs> Y'all look really love. You might be pregnant. You might be pregnant, girl. <laughs> call to Shauna now. <laughs> you ran to the bathroom a little too quick. Call her. Call her. <laughs> I see it already. <laughs> you got a glow. Was it a facial or do you? I need to give you the dual. Right. Do you need a dual contact? Because she's the best, right? <laughs> That's fire. I did see that you did do some research on doulas. So I us talk about this. I had to do a master's program. I picked doulas. I wanted to do placentophagia at the time, but there wasn't a lot of research. So I picked doulas. I wanted to know what your research showed you or what your experience has been like with them. Well, here's the thing about doulas. Doulas are so slept on. As a country, like we're late. We're late when it comes to doulas. Women and birthing people that have doulas have better outcomes. That's the tidbit right there. Less likely to have C-section. We already talked about that. More likely to breastfeed, initiate and sustain breastfeeding. Less complications and better overall health. Doulas are amazing. Every pregnancy, I will always have a doula. And shout out to my first doula as well for my first son. Like doulas are amazing. They are. And I just want to say that sometimes when we look at the research, is it like, is it because people who have access to doulas? Is it because their outcomes are better because of financial reasons? But doulas are actually can be supplied because we know that they have these better outcomes. You can reach out to your local community, states, cities, and a lot of the times they can be supplied to you free of charge. Free of charge. Every hospital that's worth their weight now that has a good OB should have a community doula program up and running that patients don't have to pay for. I was offered doula services all the time doing, I pay for mine out of pocket. But if I hadn't had the resources, I would have gone into a hospital. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to highlight that. <laughs> yeah, doulas are amazing. So it doesn't feel so inaccessible because that's something people need and not just want. Absolutely. Absolutely. 200%. Wow, that's great. Well, I was just going to say, you know, speaking about doulas and the fact that you've researched them and that you've also partook in that particular intervention, I'm wondering if there are other aspects of your research that have given you hope. I'm really big on a community being a solution to its problems. Mm-hmm. So last night, I have to give a shout out to my research team. I have a couple studies in data collection. The one that I'm working on doulas with is funded by NIH. And that's our Be A Mom study. Huge shout out to my fellow Jersey girl, my project manager, Genty Judith. This one is for you because she holds me down. She keeps that study afloat. It's huge. It's massive. Seven hospitals, clinical interventions. Shout out to my research team on that as well. Dr. Audra Meadows. Christina Gable, Alicia Larson, like it's a huge team that is moving this machine forward. Now, the other study I have that's community focused is called the Black Birth Equity Study. We literally had our meeting last night with our community members, our community advisory board. We're looking at community level responses to maternal health. So we're going to be doing interviews with birthing people, their partners. Remember how I was talking about bringing in the fathers and the parents, the birth the partners, doulas, midwives and providers. That's all community led. That's the part of my research that gives me hope because the community knows what we need. 
Mm-hmm. My job as an academic who has these multi-year big grants is to move the money to the community. Take it out of the ivory tower, put it in a community. We don't need that money in the ivory tower circulating, doing nothing. <laughs> when they get to that Ivy League hospital, there's still the same things that are going on. Right. <laughs> so that's my job as an academic. That's the part about my work that's exciting to me is engaging communities, working in partnership with communities. This is not a top-down approach. When I get into the room, I get quiet. I want to hear from the community. I'm here to be a sponge from the community. Hang my degrees on a shelf. I'm here to be a sponge. That's how you do good work. You show up, the community is going to rock with you. They have to build that trust and authenticity. That's the part of our work that gives me hope. That's the part I'm excited about is community-led solutions. We need more community doulas. We need to remove these ridiculous credentialing processes for doulas. What is that? Community-based doulas. We need to get more Black and Brown people trained as midwives. Mm-hmm. We were we talking about that too. Midwives. <laughs> Shout out to the midwives. Okay. My staff is going to kill me for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Go ahead and say it. Put it on the table. <laughs> They're going to be like, Dr. Muta, really? Like, you just couldn't wait. No, I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay. So every year during Black Maternal Health Week, I do a conference. It's so coming I, up. It's coming up. Register. Okay. <laughs> Register. And just follow us on social media. BMM Tufts. BMM Tufts. Black Mamas Matter Tufts. BMM Tufts. You'll find everything you need to know. So the conference theme next year, April 7th, 2023, is going to be on the role of Black Midwives. I just dropped it right there. Nobody even knows that. I'm just telling y'all. Oh, Nobody even knows that. Yes. Because we're talking about midwives and we need to center and honor the role of Black midwives. Black women have been solving the country's problems. We have been the backbone of this country, even in midwifery practice. Why did we have Black midwives? Why did we have granny midwives? Because no one would come deliver our babies. Period. We couldn't go to the hospital. We had to deliver at home. Do you know my grandmother? Shout out to my grandmother, Julio Curl, my maternal grandmother. Do you know my grandmother delivered my mother in the kitchen? She was on her way to church. This is in Nigeria, Emo State, Nigeria. Circa late 50s. My mom would kill me if I put the year out there. Late 50s. <laughs> <laughs> she was on her way to church. She went into labor. She's a village midwife. She's a traditional birth attendant. She went back home, boiled the water, got the machete, cut the umbilical cord, delivered the placenta. She delivered my mother in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. We've been doing it for ourselves. We need to pay homage to the work of Black midwives. So that's the conference theme next year. It's all about centering, honoring the role of Blacks in the midwifery field. Oh, yes. That is so important. We have to shout out to Amanda Montessori. We had an amazing, amazing Black midwife who is very, very passionate. Oh, I need her information. She oh, I was going to send it to you. Everybody's got to connect. Just hold that date, sis. Hold the date. <laughs> <laughs> and she is very passionate about this. She's very, very passionate about it. She's a practicing midwife. So yeah, go ahead, Up. Next question. We're rolling right through. So... I wonder what actionable steps there might be to change the current maternal mortality statistics. Has there been anything that the research has you know, alluded to or that you have heard from the community? Actionable steps to reduce maternal mortality. The two things that I can think about that are really like industry insurance based, we have to get doulas reimbursed at a livable wage. Mm, yeah. We're not paying doulas enough. We need more doulas. We need to also hold public insurance accountable. The majority of births are to the Medicaid population. So we need to engage CMS. I need to find out who's at CMS. They're the ones that are reimbursing for these births, and they're the ones that really can determine 
if a woman that has high risk services is going to get access to that maternal fetal medicine doctor. And she has Which to is wait so important. Days. It's so important. And the earlier you do it, the better. Exactly. Those are two things I can say. The other thing I would say that communities can do that's actionable and you could do this today is just if it don't feel right, it ain't right. If you go into a visit with a provider, they don't make eye contact. You got to look me in my eye, honey. Mm-hmm. I don't play that. Mm-hmm. We need to touch and agree. <laughs> I need that eye contact. I need you to, hi, what's your name? Right. Humanize me. Humanize me. Listen, my son had a minor procedure last weekend at a hospital here in the Boston area. This was like six o'clock in the morning. My husband was like, babe, relax. No, I can't relax. It's my child. So I got up there and all the providers in the room from the nurses, medical assistants, everybody. Hi, what's your name? And your role in this team is what? Oh, okay. You, what's your name? I lined him up. You knew the badge number. <laughs> badge number. I know to you, he's medical record 451298. That's my child. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So if it doesn't feel right. Yep. You hold these systems accountable. That's the best thing I tell communities. I give this talk all the time. I'm like, Dr. Mitchell, what can I do? What can I do? Listen, trust your gut, sis. Mm-hmm. You go into the visit, they're rushing you out the door. They don't sit down. They don't make eye contact. They don't give you that person. How do you think they're going to manage your care? Right. Mm. Number two, here's the other thing about physicians. I know my physician friend's about to be mad at me. <laughs> it's an educated guess. That's why they ask you such extensive family histories because they're trying to put together a case. They're trying to figure it out. Yes. Right. So you can give them as much information as you can, but you got to feel comfortable to give them that information. They got to build a rapport. They can't just come and they're looking down. Okay, what do you, ha- no, 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 no. Sit down, relax. We're going to be here for a while. Mm-hmm. Be comfortable, right? We're talking about my reproductive health here. Exactly. We're talking about my reproductive well-being here. Talking about my portal. My portal. Come on, portal. <laughs> <laughs> Don't play with my portal. Don't play with my portal, honey. Mine, okay? That's the thing we can do. Hold them accountable. If it doesn't feel right, move them off your team. They got to go. Get a new provider. Go see a midwife. Get a new OB. I was telling everybody in my pregnancy. I was like, yeah, you know that medical assistant that took my blood pressure? Yeah, she can't take my blood pressure no more. She's nasty. I don't know. <laughs> my husband was like, babe, you can't tell everybody. Why can't I? You have a patient-facing job. Right. Yes. Let's, let's get to the real issues here. I've been sugarcoating it a long time. As a profession, medicine needs, and this is partially imbursement in insurance and this being a business problem. Medicine should have never been a business. This is a helping profession. This is a healing profession. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's become very much a business. All it's about is the numbers and how many patients you saw at the end of the day. What I wanted to ask you specifically, because this is what I'm doing my dissertation on. Come on, dissertation. I know you Come on, dissertation. Come on. Always improving. Yes. <laughs> Girl, we got to talk. We got to talk. Can you untrain bias? Can you mm-hmm. untrain racism? This is my you whole dissertation. What? what are culturally competent trainings and are they effective, Dr. Amuta? Tell me right now, okay? Because <laughs> I know. actually need to write it down. <laughs> She's like, listen, tell us I can write it down right by the station. I need to know if half of my work is even viable. <laughs> right. Here's the thing, y'all. Can we undo implicit bias and racism? I think we can awaken people's deeper humanity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we can undo it because we're undoing 30, 40, 50 years of privilege, of lived experience. People just move through life. I'll never forget this, y'all. 
One day I was going to lunch with one of my white colleagues. This is downtown Boston, busy intersection. She walks in the street because she's white. They're not going to hit her. <laughs> Yikes. I'm on the sidewalk looking at her in the street. She's like, Didi, what are you doing? I said, oh, I can't cross the street like that, sis. I'm not white. They're going to hit me. Mm-hmm. In that moment, I think she was so jarred. She walked right in the middle of the busy intersection like it was nothing. Mm-hmm. That's how they move through life. That's how they move through life. They move in a different plane of reality. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. in Wakanda. Yeah. They're in Wakanda. We are not. <laughs> we are not. Yeah, that's the truth. I don't know if you can undo that. What you can do is awaken a deeper system of accountability in humanity. That's real. That's what you can do. See, it's one thing to say, I've never, I, I never had the conversation. I've never been exposed. I didn't know. Now you know. Mm-hmm. Can't unring that bell. What you going to do now? So that's what I think you should be shifting. This whole cultural conversation that blows my mind, I hate it. Listen, you can't be culturally competent. Somebody else's culture. You be culturally humble. Sit down. Be humble. Mm-hmm. You can do that. I like cultural humility more than cultural competency. I like that too. Yeah, because competency, the implicit messaging and competency means it's a place of arrival. You check it, it's done. No. It's like checking in for an appointment. I've done That's it. Right. I'm competent. <laughs> yeah, no. There's always layers and nuances. So I would say we can't undo it. We can awaken a deeper understanding of people's humanity. You need to see people as human beings. We're all the same. But when you're so conditioned, you're so privileged, you walk in a different space of reality. That's hard to undo. And now that we've started to awaken it, what are you going to do differently? That's where I would be going. Can you measure bias? Yeah, you can. Mm-hmm. People have physiological responses to racial, racially based situations. Their cortisol level will go up. That blood pressure will shoot up. You can measure it. Mm-hmm. Measure it like you measure PTSD. Yes. Yes, you can measure it. You can measure it and we should be measuring it. Mm-hmm. You can measure behaviors. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. From an HR perspective, you can measure it. Yes, you can. You know what we measure a lot? Outcomes. That's what I want to be measuring. Why are we not playing a closer look at outcomes? We know this has been going on for a very long time. I've only been in medicine for four or five years, okay? So, I mean, my whole medical journey. (laughs) It's been, yeah. I don't think I'm that special to not know what's going on. No, no, no. You're telling me you've been practicing for 35, 40 years and you're going to act like this stuff doesn't exist? For me, that's just, you don't want to see that it exists. They have a privilege, though. There's a privilege. Like, they can choose to acknowledge the existence or not. Mm -hmm. They can choose to acknowledge that. They can also choose to be oblivious and continue their oblivious life. Mm -hmm. It's a choice to tap in or tap out. I know you have an issue with this, too. But then the problem is these providers are just now, you're affecting Black people. Yeah, they're out here practicing, touching us. Yeah. I gave a talk earlier to an industry client and I was talking about just the history of unethical treatment in medicine. And I talked about James Marion Sims, who's been considered the father of modern gynecology, mm-hmm. who perfected his techniques on the bodies of enslaved Black women, Betsy, Lucy, and Anarchy. These are the ones we know their names. I'm sure there's plenty more, mm-hmm. right? These are the ones we know their names, right? This is why we know how to repair a fistula. This is how we know what to do with a speculum. Mm. How do we know the size and the technical pieces of a speculum? How do we know how a speculum fits into the cervix? All because of Black women. Black women. Pain. With no consent. No anesthesia. Mm, Miss me with that. Wow. Miss me with that. That's the history of medicine. That's the history of racism medicine, which frankly we're still seeing it today. We see these algorithms that course correct for race. What is that? What is the EFGR? What's the VBAC calculator? Why are we using this racially based racist algorithms 
to dissuade providers from providing care for people of color. Mm-hmm. This system is broken. Just fix the system. Scrap the system and then you got to start over because honestly... Make it all the way down. We have made so many technological advancements. We had a vaccine for COVID-19 within six months or a year of it being around. But I just don't understand why we're still so perplexed, why we're still so confused. Because we want to be and we can be. Mm -hmm. Willful ignorance. Not when I'm your patient. That's right. That's what Cure the Culture is about. We're about trying to get patients to understand their rights. I love that. With their body, black, brown, whatever color, you have rights and you need to know the history. If you don't know the history, then you are always going to be lost. Mm. You're always going to come in with best intentions with your provider. I'd never go into an appointment with best intent. I'm always like, you have a lot to prove right now. I have some information. I don't know everything and I'm humble and I always want to learn. And You can always teach me something. Right. Mm-hmm. And I trust your opinion, but you have to earn that trust. Absolutely. I love that. That's the thing about communities, like that advocacy piece and that agency piece. Listen, I'm not just rolling with you just to be rolling with you. You have to prove to me that you're worthy of having me on your patient caseload. Because if you don't prove that, then I'm getting another provider. Mm -hmm. That's the level of authenticity and that's the level of agency that I want all of us to feel when we go into these spaces. It's important. It's necessary. It's life-saving to be able to tell a provider, kick rocks. Yes. I'm not feeling you. This is not going to work for me. But this is the thing. People don't have that. You know, it's one of those things where even in those spaces, I just wish we knew more and how to really, really push the work for ourselves. It's important. Because what it equates to as a minor inconvenience one day could be life-threatening the next day. It's that critical. I heard someone say that most people will travel further for dinner than they will to see a doctor. That's real. That's the truth. And I do think that you have to decide your health is important to you. And you have to prioritize it because I always tell people when I had my health taken away from me, Mm -hmm. that was when I realized how it was important. That's why I decided to go into medicine because I didn't like not knowing what was going on. But at the same time, don't let it be when you don't have the power to make decisions because you are unconscious, because you are nonverbal. That's when you realize how important your health is. Yes. Preach on that, girl. That's the truth. So we talked about how we measure competency. I want to talk to you. You did say, let's talk to the Medicaid. Let's talk to Medicare. Let's get those people along. How do we hold the nation? How do we hold even globally? You said your parents were from Nigeria, right? Globally, how do we hold the world accountable for how they're treating Black women? In every aspect of health, not just maternal mortality, but even you did research on AIDS and HIV. How are we going to hold these people accountable? Mm-hmm. How long do we have? <laughs> how long do we have? I think that the best way is who we put in office at every level. Local, state, federal, national office. Who are we putting in office? What do they stand for? What are they going to do when they get into that position? How can we hold them accountable in those spaces? And then we also run for office. Mm-hmm. We have to be in there. We have to be at the table. And then when we get into these positions of privilege and of power, then we bring people along with us. Mm-hmm. So it's a twofold thing. You know, we have to be really clear about who our elected officials are, what their premises when they get in the office. If they're not doing what they need to be doing, we don't vote for them again. We don't just go vote just because they're Democrats or Republican, whatever the party is. Like, no, you have to do what you think. And Black women, you have the power. We have swayed elections in the past. Stacey Abrams. I was just about to say her name. Listen. I think Charlemagne said this, and I'm not a big fan of him, but he did say like three or four years ago, I remember listening to the radio, y'all better watch out for Black women. We're coming. (laughs) We are coming. And we are coming because we do not have time. And we don't have time to waste. 
Listen, Black women are crushing it. Entrepreneurs, Black women. Elected officials, Black women. Leadership positions getting in the C-suite, Black women. Midwives, Black women. Doulas, Black women. Like, we saving everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Have been. All right. We want to go through some lightning round questions with you. Yeah. Get to know you personally. And then you can ask me a question. I would love that. You have a five-month-old at home, so <laughs> I've been practicing pediatrics for five years, and I would okay. hope I would have some answers for you. Oh, very good. So what is the most interesting thing you've learned about your new baby's personality so far? Oh, my gosh. I'm in love. He's such a gift to me and my husband. Shout out to his father. <laughs> <laughs> the most exciting thing about his personality, he loves to laugh. He's so observant, and he's obsessed with his mother. Yes. Like I was holding him earlier for my two o'clock call and I'm talking. And he's just like, yes, mommy. Like his eyes, I just see the synapses opening up. He's just like, yes, mommy. He's processing the language and the communication and the nonverbal and the verbal. Like he's so alert and engaged. I'm obsessed. His smile is everything. It's cheek to cheek. It's all gums. It's everything. Yeah. Oh, that's precious. It's <laughs> perfect. It's the best thing ever. Big personality already. Have you started feeding foods yet? You know, we're having a conversation in the house right now. My mother, she's like, get that baby some food. Yeah, she's Nigerian. I'm sure she's been sneaking him rice. She has. You know, the little cereal, she's been pounding it up. My husband was crazy last time she was here. He was like, y'all gave my baby food. We're trying to wait till six months, right? So he'll be six months in about three and a half weeks. So, you know, right now he's exclusively breastfed. Nice. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. My first child was breastfed till 20 months, honey. Wow, great. Yes, we only stopped that because we want another. My mother's like, can you just... <laughs> the Pitocin, we need the Pitocin. Come on, stop. He's got to be 10 and you need another baby. I was like, you're right. But he got 20 months of breast milk. And then this one, we're probably going to go to 14, 15. But heavy on the breast milk and we will start foods in like three weeks. Oh, that's exciting. That's one of my favorite parts. I know. Big deal, big deal. How do you unwind after work? You're a full-time mom. You're a wife. Yes. You have mommy living at home, I hope. Yes, my mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law. Okay, so still mommy. Yes, still mommy. You need that help. Yeah. That's so important. Girl, I would function otherwise. (laughs) Yeah, you are busy. You're a full-time professor. Yes, and I have a business, honey. And you have a business, honey. (laughs) I have a consulting firm. Shout out to Amaka Consulting. I have 25 employees over there. We're doing a lot. I have four full-time jobs. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I'm a professor dean and I'm a business owner. Those are four full-time jobs I do every day. And well, by the and way. Well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. W. <laughs> One of my favorite songs is Shaka Khan. I'm every woman. She's all in me. Mm-hmm. That's me. <laughs> She's all in me. Last night, I had the baby on the boob. I was in two meetings at the same time. I had one on the laptop. I had one on the cell phone and I'm breastfeeding. I was like, girl, you are just killing it right now. Black women. Black women. So how do I unwind after a long day? I might jump on a Peloton. I love my Peloton. I'm obsessed with a Peloton. I'm so glad my husband's going to be listening to this. <laughs> Nia's been trying to get that Peloton from Charles for a minute. <laughs> no, because you know what it is? I could buy it for myself, but it's a principle of it. Yeah. It's you know, a principle. Yes. I drive two hours to work every day. I drive two hours back. I commute oh, yes. across the country lines. I feel like I deserve it. <laughs> yeah, I'll get you that Peloton. And let me tell you something, Charles, because I need you to listen to this real quick. <laughs> listen, that Peloton, honey, they have 0% APR for 43 months, honey. You're not even going to see the payments. Get her the Peloton. Get, get it. it. With the tread. 
If you like it, get the bike too. So <laughs> yeah. Get it for her. So you're exercising. I love that. Yes, yes. Does that yes. help you come down? Yes, it does. I think my husband understood, like when you're type A, high level functioning, like you have to have somewhere to put it. Burn it off. You mm-hmm. have to burn it off. So that's that. I love a good massage. Oh, and yes. I love a good massage. 90 minutes, 60 is not enough for me. I got to get 90 or two hours. Me too. And Hubby and I have a standing date night every other weekend. Oh, love that. As a couple therapist, I love yes. that. Yes. <laughs> we are so intentional about, first of all, he's an amazing husband. He's a wonderful father. We like each other and we love each other. Yes. We're going to be six years next month. We'll be six years married, been together eight years. And I don't play with the date night, honey. I throw it on for my boo. He throw it on for me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. are curious like, about each other. Yeah. And we're excited to be around each other. Like we have the day-to-day structural things like the baby needs to go to the grocery store, change the pool. But then on the weekends and he's off, it's Saturday night. Oh, we going out. Now we only going out for like two hours. It's only two hours. But it's That's a good two hours. But it's a good two hours to reconnect. And look at each other's eyes. Yes. Drink a glass of wine, hold hands. It's so beautiful, y'all. I love that. I love that for you. Thank you. And I'm wishing you many, 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 many more. Yes, yes, yes. It's the best thing. Because here's the thing. Like when your life is so full, every part of my life is so full. My career, my children, my business, my marriage, everything is so full. You have to be intentional about carving out time. You're not going to get free time. You have to steal it. You have to fight for it. You have to hold it sacred. You have to prioritize it. I'm not going to wake up and not have anything to do. Tomorrow's already planned. I'm not even there yet. But you have to create those windows. It's important. When he's off and I'm off and we sit down together, that's important. When we go out together, we step out as parents, as a couple, that's important. That's the self-care, you know? And of course, I make time. My mother, that's my bestie. I talk to her every day. I have my three best friends. We've been rocking for 20, 30 years. We're doing a self-care trip in a couple weeks. Great. Yes. It's so important, you guys. When you get to the place in your career, your life is so full, you have to carve that time out. It's not going to show up on your schedule. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as balance. <laughs> the scales are never going to be balanced. You got to steal it and put it to the side. Force it and put boundaries around it. I don't do work on the weekends. That's my family's time. Seriously, y'all. I've told all my staff. I told my staff on my consulting side. I've told my staff on my tough side. Don't schedule anything on my calendar before 11 a.m. I'm not doing it. That's time for the kids. That's breakfast time. That's tummy time for the baby. I'm going to read a book with my older son. The weekends, that's for my family. I'm in the kitchen making pancakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't play yourself. Because I won't be there. <laughs> I will be there. I don't have a problem declining, honey. I'll put a meeting in June. For what? I'll put a meeting in August. Yep, it can it'll wait. They want you, it'll wait, right? We wanted you. We waited. We sure Thank did. You. And now it's happening. Yeah. All good things come to those who wait. Ebony is always saying that to me. And she literally is like, don't call my phone. That's right. I have strict boundaries even with my patients. I had a patient call me at 12 o'clock the other night. And I was like, oh, you're bugging. I have patients texting me now. This is why I don't give out my personal number. No, because people don't know rules. They don't. And just leave them on unread. (laughs) Leave them on unread, honey. I gave you instructions to what to do when I wasn't around. Ebony, you give them instructions, correct? On the voicemail about the crisis hotline, you know about all the suicide hotlines. On my email, it's at the bottom too. Yes. Ebony, what do you always say? You need to implement the coping skills. Yeah, you have a toolkit. 
You have what you need. It doesn't have to be me. People will get what they need. It doesn't have to be. You cannot sacrifice yourself. You don't get a prize for being a martyr. You don't get a prize for working yourself into the ground. You don't get a prize for being the hardest. Oh, we hustling. We grinding. Ain't nothing cute about that. You better get some rest. You better <laughs> shut it down. You better disconnect. There's nothing cute. Oh, grind. I'm grinding. I'm grinding. I'm grinding. Why we got to grind so hard? Mm-hmm. Take it down. Disconnect. Reset. I agree. Thank you so, 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 so much. Pleasure. It was a pleasure, Dr. Amuta. I am going to try to schedule you in another six months. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? I'm already back here in my mind. Girl, say love. We would love to have you back. This was a pleasure, Dr. Amuta. Oh, my goodness. It's mine. The pleasure was mine. Your knowledge spans so many different aspects, not just maternal mortality, which I know is your expertise, but just your awareness, your energy. And your authenticity. Your authenticity, your straightforwardness. I really appreciate it. And you really are saving lives every day. Thank you. You are truly the essential worker. Thank you. Come on. (laughs) Thank you for all that you do for our community. And I will be emailing you that information because I think it's important. Oh, please. I would love that. Thank you guys so much for this opportunity. Shout out to you for this podcast. May you have a long and successful podcasting career. May this be the beginning of whatever you guys are manifesting for yourselves, for each other as a collective and as individuals, right? Like this is just the beginning. Uh, When you do this work from your gut, you do it for the love, it's just going to go higher and higher and higher and higher. This is just the beginning. I receive that. Yes, receive it. (laughs) Thank thank you everybody for joining us for another episode. Thank you, Dr. Amutah, for joining us. Everybody have a safe and wonderful blessed night. And remember, always be safe, be well, and be informed. Have a good night. Thank you for tuning in to Cure the Culture with Ebony Gadsden and Nia Phillips. If you have any questions or comments about the show, email us at cureforculture at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions expressed on this show, although research-based, are strictly conversational. All healthcare decisions should be discussed with your treating provider. Until next time, be safe, be well, be informed. Subscribe for a seat at the table with Ebony and Nia every other Friday at 8 p.m.